Hello, Rebecca Mays here for this week's edition of Stick Together, focusing on union news and social justice issues. I want to acknowledge that this program was recorded on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation and that their sovereignty has never been ceded. This episode of Stick Together was produced on Jarjarurung country and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. It is brought to you on your local community radio station thanks to the Community Broadcasting Foundation. This week, I talked to Max Ogden about his book, A Long View from the Left, published last year by Bad Apple Press. We reflected on the decline of the apprenticeship system and the important work that Max did over many years in promoting the arts within the union movement and educating workers about their rights. So let's get right into it. I've really enjoyed what I have read of your book. And yeah, I wanted to start off by talking about apprenticeships because you started off as an apprentice. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. How was that experience for you? Because I have this kind of idea that, you know, apprenticeships used to be much better than what they are now. Yeah. I was wondering your thoughts on that. Yes, that's a good question, actually. Yeah. Yeah. It was a good time to do an apprenticeship. Uh, and particularly with the State Electricity Commission, because uh, they um, uh, really took training seriously and they followed it. They t- had hundreds of apprentices every year and they, and they would plan their whole, their whole training individually. So you would be shifted from, because in those days they had, I don't know, probably two dozen um, establishments that do different things like power stations and transport and and so we'd be um uh shifted every six months or a year to work in some other part so you get a really wide experience yeah that's and they would interview you a couple of times a year to make sure you're we're getting the right kind of training that a whole department within the state electricity commission that just focused on on the apprentices and uh, make sure they got a good training so it was um, it was very good. You did five years uh, of apprenticeship. You in your first year, you uh, had a day off a week, paid of course, uh, to uh, attend a tech school. I used to do it that at Preston Tech, where I originally came from. And then the next two years, you did uh, a day off a fortnight, uh, and I, I did that at RMIT in those days. Um, and then the last two years, uh, uh, you didn't go to school, although you could do extra. The SEC would encourage you actually to do extra training and you'd give you time for it. So it was, I couldn't praise highly enough for the training we got through the State Electricity Commission. Now, just to make the point that uh, most of the state government instrumentalities, the railways, the gas and fuel, um, Country Roads Board, Metropolitan Board of Works, etc. They would employ hundreds of, of apprentices. Uh, it was sort of like a, an unwritten social contract. Uh, they would employ far more than they actually would ever use. It would stay on. and uh, But then what would happen at, at the end of, of each apprentice's five years, the uh, companies that didn't employ apprentices, like the oil companies, didn't employ any, for example. They would move in and, and employ them. Um, so it was a kind of a, a useful social contract. So the 
the, the state instrumentalities uh, played a far bigger role than just producing services. They were the, the heart and soul, basically, of apprenticeship learning. And had, that's, yeah, that's just completely broken down. Like. Well, that's once Kennett privatised all those organisations, uh, they ceased to do that. So yeah. Apprenticeship now is, is very hit and miss. Um, most of it's not very good. It's now, I think the official apprenticeship is now four years, which I didn't have a problem with. I think some try and make it three years. I don't think that's enough. But, uh, and the training is now in your own time in a lot of the cases. However, in some areas, like uh, in construction, like plumbing uh, in, and electrical, the, uh, the training companies that are, that are jointly union and employer, mm. and uh, they are, are good. That's good training. Uh, yes. But mostly it's, it's pretty poor nowadays. And, of course, it's very hard to get an apprenticeship. Yeah, that's one thing that you talk about in the conclusion to your, your book is how unions and workers and employers can work together. I forgot to mention that in those days there was what each state had an apprenticeship commission which was tripartite and chaired by government and all and all the the unions uh, and the employers would have representatives on it and then below that there'd be the industry training board so you'd have uh, below the apprenticeship commission itself you'd have a tripartite uh, one for the metal industry and one for the construction. There were dozens of them. So it was a, it was a good system. But, of course, Kennett uh, cut all that out. Uh, and in fact, all, all the Liberal governments, they don't exist now anywhere in Australia. And as a result, uh, the TAFE sector then got decimated because uh, yeah. they were the key to good training. It's, it's the one area where, despite all the, um, the animosity and particularly the employers have been so viciously attacking unions and governments like the, the Howard and Morrison governments, etc. But training is the one area where it's still possible to have a dialogue between the unions and the um, uh, employers, mm. and uh, even if the government doesn't want to be involved. So that's why you've got a couple of those quite good examples that I mentioned. Um, because it's in the employer's interest to have good training as well. So more efforts should be made and uh, to uh, bring those parties together. I mean, at one stage under the Hawke-Keating government, uh, we had the National Training Board, which was tripartite. At one stage headed up by the Laurie Carmichael, a great union leader. But um, uh, that was all dismantled as well. But I've found over the years as an official, if you wanted to get a constructive dialogue between employers and unions, training was one of the best places to start because they mm. had a common interest. Yes. And the other interesting point I'd make is a lot of people, there's a lot of research being done on this. And um, people who are trained in the apprenticeship type training, uh, that is a combination of learning on the job and uh, uh, and schooling and so on in the classroom, uh, they actually, through their working life, uh, produce more other jobs because they often become small business people and so on. So an apprenticeship-type trade learning was very good at producing other jobs through their working life. But it was the highest level.
And uh, you did so much work on uh, education within the movement and uh, you described in the book what you felt was the best course that you delivered in the workplace and it was uh, focused on new technology in three aerospace companies in the 80s. What was it about that course that made it so good? Well, it had all the elements of what what you want in in adult learning. Um, It was focused on a particular issue which was the introduction of quite dramatic new technology in the aerospace industry. It was something that uh, not only were the unions uh, new and, and a bit confronted with and a bit confused about, but so was the management. It was just a big step up in machining. Yeah. Yes. Uh, they, moved, well, they were moving to what they called five-axis computer control machining. We were quite surprised, actually, when we told the three companies, two in Melbourne and one in Sydney, and we told them that unless they agreed to this training program uh, of, of six weeks, um, we'd ban the, the new technology. And uh, to our surprise, uh, one was a government, government aircraft factory, the other two are private. Uh, they readily agreed. Um, the Sydney company, every few weeks, would send down about seven or eight shop stewards and, and, and house them for the week in the hotel and everything. And so they were able to focus on the new technology, get experts in for, for two weeks in the classroom and then go back. They'd go back to work for the next two weeks and put a whole lot of projects together and, and consult the members and so on. And, and they'd have some project to work on. Then they'd come back the next two weeks, report on those. So we were building uh, both... Um, uh, their their uh, learning, but also it was having an impact on their members. They were involving their members in the process. So it was six weeks, uh, two weeks on, two weeks off, two weeks on, two weeks off, and two weeks on. And it produced a lot. And in fact, it was only then we went and negotiated with the company in the finish, 12 months after the management said to us, they introduced the technology vastly better than they could have ever imagined. Mm. So that's what was such a good good learning process. And do you think that involving the workers in that way is also an example of industrial democracy? Yes, it was quite a deliberate strategy over many years is how best you involve the members in their own working lives. Mm. And that was a great opportunity to do it in that way. Uh, yep. We didn't have too many opportunities like that one. And everything we did was not only for the stewards to become highly educated, there was about 30 of them, uh, but so their members would also be learning. So you don't yeah. build an elite, you build a real yep. collective. Mm. I loved the story that you told about when you went into that workplace and there was a man reading poetry. Can you briefly tell us that story? Well, of course, we'd done, even before I was working for the union, uh, back from about the late 60s, we were, we were doing arts programs in workplaces, like particularly at the time we had the very exciting Australian performing group at the Fram Factory. And uh, I'd organised for them to develop little skits and t- we'd take them to workplaces over lunchtime. Particularly well-known people became well-known, Max Gillies and... Uh, uh, and Graham Blundell and people like that. And um, so we kept doing that. And then w- at one stage, we even had a, a, a union arts festival. And Pio, who I'd got to know, um, and I ran into the street one day and uh, 
uh, we got talking and he said he was uh, on holidays for a few weeks, a bit of a loose end. And, uh, and I just said, because we had done it once before, but nothing like this one. I said, well, look, why don't I organise to take you to Vickers Ruolt and, and uh, you can do uh, some uh, reciting of your poetry. And of course, Pio is quite a car. He said, yeah. So I rang the shop steward and uh, I think the shop steward thought I was mad. Um, and uh, anyway, Sorry, of course, once just, he got just down for, there. Just for reference, what, what kind of factory was it? Like what was oh, it? Oh, it's a huge heavy engineering factory. Vickers okay. Ruolt, they were the one of the largest heavy engineering factories in big, they're all long gone, of course, you know? Yes, yes. Uh, they, they had these spectacular big machines. Yeah. And of course, over the lunchtime, all the workers were were lounging around their machines. All right. And then when Pio got started, they really loved it. Mm. Uh, and then uh, when uh, the time came to go back to work, they said, no, we're going to have a stop work meeting for half an hour. And because I lose pay doing that. Yeah. And uh, when the shop steward said to me, look, this is terrific. Well, we have a stop work meeting. I said, well, it's up to you, you know. So he stopped them. Do we have it? We have somebody move that we extend the meeting by half an hour. Yes. <laughs> and Pio went on. <laughs> and the manager came out and they told him to bugger off. <laughs> and uh, I still see Pio today. He's a great guy. Yes. Yeah, it would have yeah. been a great photo with all the all them lounging on these huge machines. And yeah, and uh, and you said that afterwards that some of them were coming up and talking about how they write poetry yes. as well. Yeah. yeah, several of them said, oh, I write poetry, they said quietly, but of course their workmates would never have known. <laughs> You're listening to Stick Together, Worker Stories and Union News, broadcast around the country every week on the Community Radio Network. We're talking with Max Ogden, author of A Long View from the Left. Yeah, so you talk about your motivation to extend the influence of the union movement in areas of work beyond just pay and conditions. Um, yeah. And that, and that the art projects and stuff were part of that. Well, as, as a matter of fact, at one stage, talking about apprenticeships, the president of our union, Jim Ralston, sat on the apprenticeship commission. And uh, we had a discussion with a few people and we put up to the apprenticeship commission that an extra four hours of the schooling or the classroom we added on to um, in all the apprenticeships for apprentices to get an inkling of the arts potential of their particular trade, such as, uh, you know, in metal, metal sculpting and so on. Uh, unfortunately, of course, the employers wouldn't have a bar of it. So we wanted oh. to build it into the apprenticeship system. That's a great idea. But, uh, yeah, look, it was the members in the workplace used to love it. And the other interesting thing about that, for many of them, for example, if we put on a little play, uh, for a lot of them, it was the first time they'd ever seen live theatre, even though it's just a 15, 20-minute performance in the lunchroom or maybe even at the factory gate. A uh, few people came up to me and said, oh, this is, I've never seen live theatre before. But, look, it would fit just as well today if we could do it. Mm. Of course, a lot of cases we needed 
the the agreement of the employer. But even yeah. when we didn't, we just do it out in the in the mm. front. Yeah, and as I say in the book, at one stage we had full time arts officers in mm. in the ACTU and every trades hall council or every state trades hall council. Or we had one in Newcastle. Newcastle was particularly. They were very uh, Newcastle's interesting city. It was in those yeah. days. They they had a very active musical and art scene that was based at the workers' club, and so it was very much integrated with the unions. Uh, I used to love to go to Newcastle because of that that culture they had there. Yeah. So and, yeah, we're going to be as relevant as ever. Now look what's happening in Melbourne at the moment. The comedy festival is mm. huge in the trades hall. It takes over the trades hall completely for about four weeks yeah uh and and uh, uh and that's that's been the result in the trades hall since those days when when uh i've spent the first six months getting at the program off the ground ever since the trades hall has uh been involved with the arts in one way or other and it's been quite quite widely used Mm. So, and I, uh, I know Ballarat Trades Hall uh, definitely doing some of that as well, like having creative oh, events good. at the hall, and and of course it can attract the kind of person who might be mightn't be particularly interested in the union. But if the union was to do something like that, was it that attracted them in their arts that they're interested in? It's another element of getting to people. Yeah, uh, and the union movement being seen as as quite a you know enjoyable, attractive place to be part of. Uh, you talk about co-ops in your conclusion as well and some examples from the US and, and Mondragon. Do you think that that could be applied in Australia? Well, look, it's it's beginning to... Co-ops have been around for a long time, um, but they've never in Australia been part of the labour movement as such. Uh, of course, many of the, the successful ones have been farming co-ops as well. In other countries, co-ops like in Italy... The cooperation, the cooperative movement is a very is an integral part of the labour movement and of the left. But uh, here, the culture of co-ops has, has never really taken off. What's happened recently? We've made a couple of attempts to try and save a couple of places in the food industry when they were being closed by multinationals in Australia. Have, have them taken over by the workers and, and yeah. run. Now, we got a lot of support in local communities for that. Uh, for various reasons, we couldn't get them off the ground. One was getting investors, even though we had very good reports that, that uh, they would be successful. Oh. Well, for example, at Heinz in, uh, up in the, in the Golden Valley, a source plant, uh, they were just closing it like that. We were able to delay the closure for a few months while we... Um, tried to put together a co-op of the workers and the local community uh, who could buy it off them and it wouldn't have cost much, but then they would have had to uh, in, put new equipment in. Mm. Probably the, the, we, ha, we had an official state government uh, study done that showed that for about, if we could raise about three and a half million uh, and then... Um, it would be profitable within about three years. Uh, and, and we went a how, long way down how, the track. How would that work in terms of the workers owning it if there were other investors? They'd all have equal shares. They'd buy equal shares. 
Um, and uh, they would then elect the committee to run the place, and then they'd they would then appoint the um, the CEO. Um, mm. But the other important thing I, I keep stressing about co-ops is that most co-ops are jointly owned by the people who, who are the cooperators. Yeah. Uh, but they're usually managed in a traditional way. Mm. So you have a hierarchical management. Uh, what we what Mondragon is, for example, and most of the Italian co-ops I'm familiar with, they're not only cooper cooperatively owned, but and democratically owned, but they're democratically managed. Mm. Uh, so the workers have a big say in what happens in the day-to-day manufacturing operation. So you have very little middle management, and so you save huge amounts of money. So co-ops have got to be both democratically owned and democratically managed. And that's mm. what we would have done with Heinz. Just when we thought we were going to get somewhere and uh, the local community was, was very supportive, um, Heinz uh, uh, not only closed the plant, but... Um, wrecked it. They sent in a group of, of, of thugs to smash it all up. So wow. uh, that's uh, really, the, that's so it's a really not They nice. cut off all, all the, the wiring, what they call three-phase wiring, which is critical and costs a lot of money. Uh, they cut it all off. They chopped everything up. They smashed up machines so they couldn't be used. And uh, so all of a sudden, the three and a half million went to seven million and we're starting and it was well beyond what we could do. Uh, and a similar thing happened in South Australia at a different kind of plant, at a fish plant. It wasn't quite as bad as that, but it wasn't far. But they also tried to make the plant unusable. But um, wow. but there's quite a, there's increasing interest here. There's a few young union officials. There's some good uh, who are quite interested in the idea of this is a way to save operations because mm. they may be unprofitable in the traditional corporate sense, but. Uh, uh, they may be more than than viable as a co-op because yeah. all the co-op needs to do is to uh, generate enough funds that it can uh, reinvest regularly mm. and, uh, and where possible be able to um, uh, pay everybody a dividend. Uh, yeah. So, but it doesn't need to pay huge, you know, no, uh, if it just breaks even and yeah. it's providing good jobs and so on, investing continuing investing well that's all we need yeah but yeah there's increasing interest here uh mm. in in um, in the labor movement uh, particularly amongst a number of very fine young people who've managed to get some good policies through the actu mm. and the um the labor party so i think co-ops can play a much uh, bigger role the united states steelworkers union uh uh they employ a person full-time from mondragon Mm. to constantly look at some of the companies where their members bring their attention to the fact that the company's struggling. Mm. Or sometimes, for example, in fact, it often happens, uh, a successful business and the, the original owner comes to retire and no, their kids aren't interested. And so it opens up the possibility mm. of buying it off them and operating as a, as a cop. So they have a person from Mondragon, a real top expert, who's constantly scanning and then um, and they've been successful in taking over a couple of places and, and then developing as co-ops mm. um, with members and where the union helps with all the admin and, and so on. 
and the members remain, uh, and in some cases, uh, uh, they increase their union membership. Yeah. With the union playing a, 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 a making sure they're getting the right wage and conditions, but also helping them and train them how to how to minister a business like that. Yeah. It's an interesting really... example around the world, but yeah, cool. it's it's not easy as the two examples uh, in the food industry showed. Yeah. Uh, mm. They came to the crunch. And the interesting thing is, we'd assured Heinz that we 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 would not be producing a product that would compete with theirs. Mm. We'd already there was a lot of creativity amongst the community and the workers to to produce whole new value-added products, not just bottles of sauce. Yes, but that didn't, that didn't satisfy Heinz. They still went and smashed the place up. The other thing is Australian management, as I say in the book, are among the worst in the world. Since the mid-90s, there's been several significant research projects and every one of them finds Australian management quite poor by world standards. And uh, so the union, we should be negotiating and intervening in the production process because that's what our members would like us to do. Mm. They'd like to have a say in how places are managed and, and improving productivity. Thanks very much. A lot of things we've discussed in there. Uh, I'm very grateful for all of your insight and inspiring stories. Good, Rebecca. Thanks very much. stick together this week it was such a privilege to talk with max there's so much to learn and so many great stories you can buy a copy of a long view from the left at the new international bookshop or online at badapplepress.com.au thanks for listening and thanks again to max ogden for talking to us stick together is produced at 3cr studios in melbourne and broadcast nationally on the community radio network The podcast is available at 3cr.org.au and you can contact the producers of the show at sticktogether3cr at gmail.com or by calling 03 9419 8377 and leaving us a message. Remember, wherever you are, whatever you do, there's a union for you. I'm Rebecca Mays. Catch you next time.